We talk a lot on this channel about individual rights, and we all know that when governments function properly, they can be one of the great protectors of human rights. But we also know that when governments don't function properly, they are one of the great violators of these rights. Today, I'd like to explore this question from, from the perspective of what happens to rights in wartime? Is, if, in fact, is there such a thing as human rights during situations of war, during situations of international armed conflict or civil war, anarchy, etc.? Here to help me explore some of the history, some of the background of attempts to codify principles of war or laws of war is our great legal mind in residence, James Valiant. James, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I uh, hope you are too, Nicholas. Definitely, definitely. So I thought we'd begin by talking about the, the Geneva Conventions. Now, the Geneva Conventions was a series of four conventions. The first was way back in 1864, and the fourth convention was in 18, uh, 1949, after the Second World War. And there have been three supplementary protocols in more recent times. So here's the background. In the mid 19th century, there was a Swiss businessman and philanthropist named Henri Dunant, who had this horrible experience. He visited this war zone in, in Italy, and he saw the appalling conditions of the sick and wounded soldiers. And he was so horrified by, by what he saw that he wanted to start a, a neutral international organization that would look after the welfare of combatants who are no longer able to participate in war. This, of course, was the International Red Cross. Uh, and shortly after that, he organized the first International Geneva Convention uh, in 1864. Many of the European countries were invited to participate. And for his efforts, uh, he became the recipient of the first uh, Nobel Peace Prize in 1901. Now, the first two Geneva Conventions were primarily concerned with ameliorating the conditions of sick and wounded soldiers, soldiers who are no longer able to participate in combat and establishing rules for how doctors and nurses would be protected when close to combat zones. Uh, then the third Geneva Convention was primarily, which I think was in 1929, was primarily concerned with prisoners of war, how prisoners ought to be treated humanely. And then the fourth and final Geneva Convention, which was in the wake of the Second World War, was primarily concerned with civilians, with non-combatants, the treatment of non-combatants in, in war zones. So James, can you fill us in on some of the details of the history and maybe address the question of, how effective were these protocols, just to take the First and Second World Wars as an example, how effective were these international laws? It is a sad sort of uh, uh, demonstration of the ineffectiveness of these idealistic, well, about the idea of international law as such, especially during times of war. You know, the 19th century was the longest extended period of peace in European history. Between the Napoleonic Wars and World War I, Europe experienced a period of peace, perhaps unknown since the time of ancient Rome, uh, honestly. And uh, idealism was growing in the 19th century about war, and the horrors of war were becoming more and more clear as technology. Uh, the technology of waging warfare. So during the wars of Italian unification, which brought about the unification of Italy, 
they were pretty grim. And as you pointed out, the founder of first the Swiss Red Cross that became the International Red Cross uh, uh, saw the atrocities there. There was also experience in the American Civil War going on at the time too, which was introducing some of the horrors of modern warfare to the world. Um, and uh, there was international outrage about the way soldiers uh, were dying and left to bleed and suffer and so it was thought that an international organization, a neutral international organization could come in and uh, protect soldiers on the battlefield. It, it really, the ironic thing is the sort of the prologue, one of the exceptions to this great period of peace was the Franco-Prussian War, sort of the prologue to World War I. And of course, those protocols from the 1860s were promptly ignored by the Prussians in the Franco-Prussian War. They oomph up the protocols and as a result of that, and uh, by the way, they also start including weapons of mass destruction like bio biological and chemical weapons before World War I. And of course, the Germans are the first to use poison gas in World War I. And so again, we have protocols getting ignored. Okay, you're right. In the 1920s after World War I, we have to have prisoners of war protected. You know, prisoners of war have to be specially protected. So let's look at World War II. Let's look at the way the Japanese treated prisoners of war, British, American, Chinese prisoners of war, and how horrifically they were tortured and treated. Once more, those protocols did not protect prisoners of war. And so uh, after World War II, and we have the amazing atrocities, I mean, just uh, astonishingly on medical experiments on children being conducted in Nazi concentration camps. So they oomph those. And by the way, in the war crimes trials, they, they can't go by the previous existing uh, 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 just by the previous existing protocols, they have to go by these newly created rules after the war to go after these Nazi war criminals, by the way, during the Nuremberg trials. So you oomph that up. But of course, we have that. And did any of these protocols stop the jihadists from beheading journalists in our lifetimes or raping uh, women, non-combatant women in our lifetimes. No, each and every time the aggressive nation seems to violate flagrantly, we have violations of existing prior existing protocols. These protocols have been ineffective to say that they're ineffective would be an understatement. The uh, aggressive nation, look, dictatorships do not respect the rights of their own citizens. When they, and dictatorships have been the cause of war in the modern world. And so when they go to war, do they, well, let me look at, it, look at it this way. When they brought down uh, the World Trade Center on 9-11, 2001, these uh, mad jihadists and killed thousands of innocent civilians of all religions, sexes and ages, uh, do you think they had any respect for human rights? Do you think people like that would have any? Do you, do you think people who would take the Soviet unions, uh, the Soviet Union, who were sending uh, their, their own people to gulags or Nazi Germany, they were sending their own civilians to concentration camps. Do you think nations like this are going to respect things like the Geneva Protocols? No. The only people it seems to have any effect on limiting are the victims, the nations that were more respectful of rights and didn't start the war in the first place are the only ones who are going to have any moral sensibility because that's the thing about international law. There is no international government to enforce them. Were there an international government to enforce them, there wouldn't have been war in the first place, but I don't trust any international government. <laughs> I wouldn't want there to be an international government. The closest things we have would include things like the, the United Nations today, which is a total joke. And on the human rights panel, you've got Iran 
Iran, the Soviet Union, China, North Korea. And if th those countries can be on the human rights panel of this international body, then the international body itself is a joke, in my view, when it comes to uh, this sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I uh, don't think that it's really legitimate law. Even though most nations of the world are signatories to some form of these Geneva Protocols, uh, they can opt out at any time. It's international law. If a nation wants to opt out of Protocol 4 or Protocol 3, they have and they do and they will. Uh, so uh, international law, it, I think, needs to be put in quotes. Let me put it that way, because it's kind of a joke when it comes to reality. Well, I think you've put your finger on the problem. So when I think of the Geneva Conventions, uh, I'm tempted to make a rather a philosophically dubious evaluations, namely that it sounds good in theory, but in <laughs> practice, it just doesn't seem to work. Uh, so you mentioned uh, chemical and biological weapons. Yeah, there were the, I think it was the second Geneva Convention, and then there was the, the Hague uh, Conventions, specifically on the subject of chemical and biological weapons, which pretty much all of the participants in World War One violated. They were all- you know, violated. The Germans may have been the using... first, but both sides did it. <laughs> yeah, and then, so the, the real problem comes down to enforcement. If you have these international laws, who's really going to enforce them? Now, you, if you actually read the articles of the Geneva Conventions, one point that comes up is that the signatory nations are the ones who are themselves supposed to enforce these laws. So a particular country participating in an international armed conflict is supposed to be monitoring its armed forces to make sure that they're not violating these laws, violating these laws, violating the rights of enemy combatants or civilians or whatever. But as you said, if these belligerent nations want to opt out of these articles or simply ignore them, disregard them, what's to stop them from doing so? Exactly, exactly. And, they, and it, it's not as though it's the exception that they're ignoring them. It's the rule that they ignore them. <laughs> Whoever the aggressive nation is, if there's a major conflict, promise. History of the last 150 years has shown they will violate them and violate them flagrantly, uh, obviously, because there's no enforcement mechanism. And like I say, all the good guys do is tie their own hands uh, uh, with options. No, I don't think, of course, there should be medical experiments on children, unnecessary violence, killing people just to kill people, slaughtering of civilians. No, of course not. And of course, people, sh there should be uh, some kind of respect for doctors and nurses who are trying to get out there and help wounded soldiers, for example. In principle, of course, uh, we should only do that force which is necessary in war, but we should be free to do the, all the force that is necessary in war. And it's sort of a, a pie in the sky dream that somehow everyone will sort of respect these, you know, it's like, uh, you know, uh, we're on ARC UK and the, I love the British people for their civilization. Uh, and they are the most civilized people in the world still, but you know, war is not a game of cricket as someone said on Facebook today. And it, to expect it to be a game of cricket is absolutely unrealistic. We have to be prepared to do what is necessary to win the war. Obviously, if it's not necessary force, it's uh, it's immoral. But we can't expect aggressor nations to respect anything like that. Uh, they won't. They started the war. If you invade Poland or bomb Pearl Harbor or attack on 9-11, bring down the World Trade Center, what kind of human rights uh, respect do you think we can uh, reasonably expect uh, from these uh, nations? We can't. It's, it's kind of a, a, even in theory, it's kind of a joke because aggressor nations aren't going to respect any limits on their use of force.
they're going to torture and uh, <laughs> they're going to do whatever uh, they think is necessary to break the will of their enemies. And they do it to their own populations, their dictatorships. It's just routine. Absolutely. And a point that Rand herself makes in some of her essays is that the point of war is to win, to win and to win as quickly as possible, to, re to restore a normal state. Uh, and that's why, as Nikos pointed out in his video a few weeks ago, the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was thoroughly justified and thoroughly moral because it brought the war to an end as quickly as possible with a minimum of American casualties and I would say ultimately with a minimum of international ca casualties when you consider what was going on in the whole uh, uh, Far East. Now, a lot of commentators on the Geneva Conventions and Protocols have pointed out that the nature of warfare has changed a lot since uh, since 1950, not, not just because of technology, but also a lot of conflicts since the Second World War have been non-international conflicts. They've been various kinds of civil wars in different parts of the world, the Middle East, Africa, uh, etc. And so a, a lot of these attempts at international laws, uh, rules of war, have been targeted, have been targeting at how aggressor nations should treat their own civilians, should treat the dissent. But the, the question I want to address is, is rules of war or laws of war, is that even a coherent concept, especially when you're talking about civil war, when you're talking about anarchy? Because law, law the, print, the concept of laws of war presupposes that there's some sort of standard, there's some sort of law within a certain geographical territory. But when you have civil war, when you have anarchy, where there's disagreement about who the the rightful authority is can you have any kind of laws of war in in a civil war or in a situation of anarchy again let's look at reality oh god the grim horrific reality of our lifetimes hey uh, when the khmer rouge took over in cambodia and just killed everyone with glasses because they distrusted intellectuals or Idi Amin coming along and wiping out entire categories of his population because they opposed him, or the the chopping off of limbs in the in Central Africa just to get blood diamonds. No, no. See how this international law has worked to protect people against atrocities. Now it's been a disaster, and it, it really there's no effective means of doing it. And if you think this inter, this United Nations organization is any means of doing it, all it takes is a veto for any effective action that the United Nations might do requires Security Council approval and any one of the permanent members can veto that. That means China. That means Russia. So Putin or Xi can put a, the kibosh on any attempt to do anything, even if there was some desire by the greater powers to come in and prevent these atrocities from happening. Our current system is simply a joke for doing that. Uh, so, and it's been a bloody damn disaster that uh, uh, in our lifetime uh, is uh, really uh, a permitted unspeakable atrocities to just hundreds of thousands, mil perhaps millions of people just since 1950. So uh, international law mm, is mostly myth. You mentioned a moment ago the United Nations, and we know that Rand herself had a very negative view of that organization. Uh, part of the reason she gives is that countries like Russia, China are members of the council. Is the United Nations at all salvageable? Is there anything that could be done to actually make the idea behind the United Nations viable in our time, in our lifetimes? No, 
No, the United Nations is a, is a thoroughly corrupt idea. The idea of ta- territorial uh, integrity that would include dictatorships is obviously a dictatorship protection plan. So the entire conception of the United Nations from my perspective is corrupt and immoral. It protects dictatorships, it preserves dictatorships. It does nothing but uh, uh, make them a permanent feature of our world. We do nothing but betray the victims in dictatorship nations by belonging to this organization. Now, if, if you were to conceive a whole new different organization, one that, has a, that only permitted or, uh, nations that respect, actually respected in, uh, uh, individual rights, that had some conception of respecting individual rights, then, and it was restricted only to the better nations of the world, well, I wouldn't have a problem joining that uh, body if that body was designed to uh, eliminate rights violations in this world. Not that we have a duty to do so, not that I would say that we have to go out and take out every dictatorship in the world just because it's there. No, it should be on a case-by-case basis, whether it's worth it to the West to, to do it, whether they themselves, their interests are involved, whether it's a threat to them as well. So I wouldn't say there's some duty by the uh, even the, the rights-respecting nations to go out and correct the entire world, even if there were such a body. And we'd have to recognize that there's little and or nothing we could do except our moral suasion and isolating those uh, pariah nations that are violating rights. Uh, but the conception of the current United Nations, no, from its very conception, it is morally corrupt in my view, and it only protects dictators and hurts people who live in dictatorships. I think a question on a lot of viewers' minds will be, for those of us who live in the the better nations, the more civilized, more progressive nations, is there any legitimacy to the idea that we should impose certain restrictions on ourselves about how we behave in wartime? For agreeing on certain basic things, like we're not going to conduct human experiments, we're not going to conduct rape, mutilation, torture, we're not going to abuse non-combatants, civilians, etc., Bearing in mind that other other nations won't obey those rules, but should we at least have certain basic principles for ourselves? And is it even realistic to expect that we could enforce such rules? Oh, I th- the, the, the nation itself can enforce a code of military justice on its own military. And that is the only thing that it historically has been or could be. In my even conceivably could be effective is the nation enforcing its own rules. And as I say, Obviously, uh, we don't. It would be counterproductive uh, for us if we were uh, fighting a Nazi Germany to engage in unnecessary force. It would be counterproductive, just as it was counterproductive for Hitler to engage in all that unnecessary force, just as it was counterproductive for Japan to engage in all that unnecessary force. But guess what? They're engaging in that unnecessary force. And so within very broad parameters, yeah, of course, we don't want our soldiers engaged in criminal activity, engaged in raping and killing people overseas when they're engaged in war or something. We have to have our own code of military justice regulating our uh, the men and women who serve in our armed forces and it's perfectly appropriate to do so. Now, when it comes to fighting the war strategically, I want to back up here and say, we have to be free to do what is necessary. And see, I'm using this word necessary. We shouldn't be engaged in just unnecessary 
violence and atrocities, obviously. On the other hand, we should be free when it is forced and we've and force has been initiated against us, we should be free to use whatever force is necessary. So uh, when it comes to the, the line, I wouldn't start making specific rules about the, uh, the strategy and tactics that we might be limited to in the course of that war. We have to keep an open-ended idea of what might be necessary. We might have to, in World War II, forget the, just the atomic bombs, the firebombing of Dresden. The, the, we just completely destroyed a major German city. The Allies firebombed and completely destroyed a major German city, killing tens of thousands, perhaps, of civilians. Okay, wow. Uh, might that be necessary? Things that horrific might be necessary. It, it, really, if it's required to break the will of an aggressor nation, if it's required to destroy their ability to supply their, their army. So I would be very skeptical about rules controlling us if we've been attacked we should be free to do what, use whatever force is reasonably necessary. On the other hand, should we have a code of military justice for preventing our people from engaged, engaging in wartime, what we would call wartime atrocities? Absolutely. But it can only be enforced by that nation against its own uh, military, it seems to me. Yeah, and I think there's a point of view for those of us who live in the civilized nations that when we send our young men off to war, we want them to have the moral high ground. We want them to feel like they really are de defending a just cause. That they have they have a certain morale, a certain sense of integrity in what they're in what they're doing. And putting limitations on, yeah, we can't go out and be committing any kind of atrocities, whether it's um, experiments or sexual atrocities or anything like that. It's 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 in our interest if we want to win wars, if we want our troops to really believe in what they're doing. That's right. That's right. And well, if we are really the victims of an attack, if these guys are the aggressors, if they're the ones engaged in atrocities, yeah, that's why it's, it, we really, you know, people will say things like, don't we need a draft? And I say, look, no, we don't need a draft precisely for this reason. What are we fighting for? We're, we're fighting, uh, we're going to, okay, slavery in some form over here because we're fighting those slave drivers over there? No, no, no. Uh, we, you can't become the enemy in the quest to fight the enemy. On the other hand, if we are the victims of this, we have to be able to, we have to be free to use whatever force is necessary under the circumstances. I grant you it has to be necessary and reasonably connected and necessary, but with that, with that sole limitation, <laughs> the good guys have to be free to do what it takes to win the war. And for those of us in, in the Western nations, do you think the Western nations in general have done a good job of adhering to these basic standards of not committing atrocities overseas in other parts of the world? Well, I I want to criticize my own government here uh, uh, because let's just look at the most recent war in Afghanistan. 20 plus bloody years in a senseless war with young British and Americans dying all the time you know, every month we'd get some casualty list of all the young people that had died. For what, Nicholas? For what? Now, that war is technically over. That war is over. In fact, America is technically not at war with any Middle Eastern nation right now. And yet at Guantanamo Bay, we still have people who've never been in front of a judge, never been offered any due process. And even with the war all closed down, our Supreme Court did push back George Bush and said that, yes, there's some due process. They have to have some military tribunals there. But guess what? There are folks there still 
in Guantanamo. Now, horrible people, people that, in my view, might have been able to be shot on the battlefield rather than be captured at the time of the war. But currently, they there's, in effect, no due process rights for people who are still at Guantanamo. This may make some of my objectivist friends upset that I'm even raising that issue. But it seems to me, no, uh, if America can can what we tried to do is not bring these prisoners of war in this war on terror back to the states where they knew there'd be due process rights. So what did they do? They kept them in European facilities to interrogate them, or they brought them to Guantanamo where they knew they wouldn't have to uh, give them uh, jury trials and so forth. Or even they even tried to get rid of even no military tribunals. But in effect, America has not uh, had clean hands in this respect, in in my view. So no, uh, these these rules don't even <laughs> don't even necessarily protect uh, uh, people from the better countries of the world, including my own. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Unfortunately, rule of law and due process even have to apply in the case of horrible people. We we can't yes, make sir. exceptions there. One last question before we turn to the super chats and comments. The one question on my mind is. Is there anything we can do to help people in other parts of the world who are being subjected to cruel and unusual treatment? People who live under countries, under governments that don't respect international law. Are, should we just, are these Geneva Conventions, are they totally obsolete, totally useless? Is there anything that the international community do, can do to help people who are being treated unjustly in different parts of the world, whether it's North Korea, Africa, or wherever? Well, I think of recent stories that I've heard from the Islamic Republic of Iran and how women uh, who uh, show uh, you know an inch of skin in violation of their you know you, you cover women have to be covered from head to toe when they go out in public the woman gets arrested for it and somehow she just dies in custody there now is there any international law that protected her is there any protocol that protected her so it seems to me that all this nonsense that uh, we're buy into has done nothing to protect people in north korea the Uyghurs in China, these uh, victims in uh, Iran, for example, those folks aren't being protected. So what we have to do is stop subsidizing and sanctioning these evil governments. We can't be making deals with Iran, uh, releasing billions of dollars of what we of what they claim is are, are their money. We can't negotiate with these people. We can't sanction these people. We can't trade with these people. We can't belong to international organizations that have them on the Human Rights Council. That's an utter joke. We're utterly betraying these people. If we want to help the victims of these horror states, these slave pens, then what we got to do is stop sanctioning them. Stop negotiating with them, trading with them, belonging to international organizations that give them moral credibility. That's what we can do to protect these people. We're doing just the opposite. And look, and look. I mean, they're harvesting organs from Uyghurs in China. These women who get arrested for, for the uh, hijab laws are getting dying mysteriously in jail. Uh-huh. No, our current regime is only helping these dictators, sanctioning these dictators, negotiating with these dictators, and hurting and betraying their victims and their nations. Uh, so if you want to help these people, get the hell out of the United Nations. Stop negotiating with these nations and giving them sanction. Stop trading with them, for God's sakes. <laughs> Excuse me if I get a little upset, but I hear horror stories and I hear the way the West officially sanctions what's going on there, in effect. And then they say, oh, how horrible this is. Ah, well, obviously, your current regime of protecting rights is doing a bang-up job, folks. <clears throat>
Yeah, it's time for a rational foreign policy. We need yeah. uh, we need Mark Pellegrino for president. You're right. <laughs> Man, I joined that campaign. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, check in with our producer, Daniel. Do we have any super chats, comments from our viewers? Uh, we have a super chat from Jonathan. Thank you so much. And those are all the super chats, but upcoming shows, we have the reality show starting in just about two minutes. Link is in the chat. And then at uh, 10 p.m. UK time, we have that's in uh, four hours. We have Life on Earth with Robert Naser. He's going to comment on one very good question, uh, sentence, and that is, I don't know. He's going to talk about this. Very good. You know, this Saturday for paid subscribers, we're going to have a great discussion, a debate over this very kind of issue. Uh, is it okay to uh, invade dictatorships and Ayn Rand's position on that? But that's for our Saturday discussions, and that's only for paid subscribers. So if you value this kind of uh, broadcast, and if you want to participate in our Saturday discussions, you got to be a paid subscriber. So do consider becoming a paid subscriber to the Ayn Rand Center UK. Thank you very much, James, for another excellent discussion. Thank you to all our viewers and supporters in the audience. And until I see you next time, I wish you all the best of premises.